I know you got your first contract in 84. What was that first contract for and what did you do and how did you get that contract? Well, this is one of these things where if I told you what it was, they'd have to kill me. A lot of work you do for the government in these high-end areas is highly classified. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life, the ins and outs of their industries, and the different ways that they have found success. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, Will. Thank you. A beautiful Sunday afternoon up here in Virginia. Could you talk to me about entropy a little bit? Oh, geez. <laughs> well, entropy is a physics concept that gets applied widely to other areas. And what it really is, is a measure of disorganization. If you're studying a complicated system and you can compute its entropy, you can figure out how much complexity and confusion is yet to be kind of tamed. It's a very interesting concept. It started off in physics, and now it applies widely in mathematics and applied work like statistics. Can we talk a little bit about Metron? What is Metron? Well, Metron is the company I started back in 1982. It really grew out of experiences I had with another consulting firm that I joined right out of graduate school. I graduated with a degree in mathematical statistics, which is different from applied statistics. It's more about deriving the theorems and the the formulas that are used in actual statistical applications. I faced the decision of whether I wanted to be in the academic world or in the applied world. And what I figured was that since statistics is an applied topic, I knew a lot of the mathematics, but I didn't really understand how applications go. So I took a job with a firm out of a little suburb of Philadelphia called Paoli, Pennsylvania, which did a lot of high-end mathematical consulting work. And it was one of the best things I ever did. I met a lot of nice people and learned that mathematics can be an offering that you can make to a client that really might help him in what he's doing. This firm was organized kind of like a law firm in the sense that it was composed of about 50 professionals, each of whom had his own clients and were trying to work work with that client to solve problems that had a mathematical context to them. A typical example might be working for a client in the Department of Defense who is trying to design a new, say, submarine detection system, and he's bought all the gear. He has the hydrophones, the actual microphones that you put in the water to listen for noise and submarine noises in particular. But what he doesn't know how to do is actually take those physical measurements and actually convert them into a detection estimate, like have you actually detected a submarine or not? And so the type of disciplines involved in solving a problem like that are the physics of the ocean environment, engineering aspects of the sensor system that has been designed to detect those submarine noises, and then algorithms that will estimate the probability that a submarine is actually present given you see certain patterns in the noise you collect. That's the nature of a problem in the applied world that, say, this firm addressed, and I learned my P's and Q's with that firm about how to have clients in particular and how a business like that ought to run to keep clients satisfied. And that was at Wagner Associates? Yes, it was at Wagner Associates. And I worked there from 73 until 82, which is about nine years. And one of those years was actually spent at Johns Hopkins. I was an adjunct professor of mathematical statistics. And what I was doing there was I was trying to decide if I wanted to stay in the applied world or actually go back to the academic world and try to be a professor. And what I learned in my one year in the academic world was it wasn't nearly as much fun as being in business and having clients and having relationships with people. And that's kind of more who I am. I like using my whatever skills I have to actually develop relationships with people and thereby develop new friends. I decided to go back 
to the applied world, and I've been there ever since. You said you learned through Wagner Associates how to maintain clients and kind of keep up relationships. What are some of the things or tips that you kind of figured out from being at Wagner, and how did you come about those realizations? I think each person that does this has his or her own theory about how to have clients and what clients need and want from you. What I try to do is have an actual relationship with my clients. I'm trying to get them to tell me, and you know, since they're not typically schooled in kind of high-end science, they don't really know how to articulate the scientific problem they have, and you've got to sort of get it out of them by having them describe the practical problem they have, like what are they really trying to do and what do they see as the chief difficulties. And then you kind of propose possible solutions with examples and you try to apply those potential solutions to their problem and see how they work. And so it's a relationship. It's really about relationships with your clients. And that's always what I liked about the real world. And that's what I learned with Wagner Associates is how to have clients and, and have enough of a relationship with them that you can actually determine what their problem is scientifically and then solve it for them. So it's 1982, and you come up with the idea for Metron. How did you come up with the idea, and why did you think that there was such a big opportunity for Metron? Well, I could see from my nine years with Wagner Associates that there are lots of opportunities for people that, number one, understand kind of, I'll say mathematics, high-end mathematics and physics, and also for someone who values relationships. I mean, Consulting is about those two things. You'll eventually have some dealings with lawyers in your life, well, I'm sure, but that's what lawyers do too. The law is very technical, and in law school, they learn a lot about it and how to apply it and what wins and what loses. But what they really do is they develop relationships with people that have applicable problems. And that combination has always fascinated me. I like being useful to people who I thought of as my friends, and that's the kind of career I wanted to have. And at that point, what was Metron doing? I know you got your first contract in 84. What was that first contract for and what did you do and how did you get that contract? Well, this is one of these things where if I told you what it was, they'd have to kill me. A lot of work you do for the government in these high-end areas is highly classified. So I'd made a nice mark for myself and also Wagner Associates in a, one of these highly classified projects. And when they heard I was quitting, they put me into a relationship with another contractor on the project and I subbed to that other contractor. That helped me enormously. It gave me a steady income so I could continue to feed my family. And it gave me the money and the stability to actually hire people. So, and that was about relationships. I mean, I saw my business as helping my clients. And then when I needed help, my clients kind of helped me. It really worked out well, and I feel there's a lot of luck involved, but to me, it's always been about relationships. And so in my business, as I ran it, I ran it about establishing relationships with good people who have good technical problems and who themselves want to have relationships with. Because you can't really get into the details of the projects, could you describe broadly what what Metron does and yeah. what are some of the capabilities? Sure. So a typical Metron product would be a submarine force buys a new sensor system and it might detect some artifact in the ocean produced by submarines or disturbances in the water column caused by submarines, some manifestation of a submarine being present and moving along in the water. And having ascertained that this might be a way to detect submarines, they're very interested in hiring people that know physics and mathematics to design an actual sensor system that can detect this phenomenon and take the data from that sensor system and actually produce an estimate 
of where the target is and how fast it's going. It's tracked. So what these systems do is what's called detection and tracking. And so that's kind of what I did in my early career. From there, we moved on into other fields like finance and sales territory alignment, all of which are kind of projects that require fairly sophisticated mathematics like PhD level mathematics to actually address, but are problems in the real world that say make people money and establish success of businesses. So these projects typically had really interesting technical content for us to sink our, our teeth into. And also if we got the right answers for people that would help their businesses. One of the biggest projects Metron's ever had using something called dynamic programming. Now dynamic programming is a really cool technique that we also use in the financial markets. And what it permits you to do is to say you're trying to wend your way through a minefield where the mines are moving, which is kind of a, a typical thing that surface ship would do. And there's all kinds of sensors. There's bad guys out there that if the blue goes up, they're going to try to shoot you out of the water. And so the problem is if you're going to go from say, across the Atlantic Ocean, you're going to go from, say, Scotland to Norfolk, and say, if there were people out there that were trying to attack you, they're getting their data from sensor systems that are over the Atlantic Ocean, typically. And so how do you wend your way across the Atlantic to avoid their sensors and the satellite sensors so that they don't ever actually see you and therefore can't attack you? And these sensor systems are all dynamic. So it's like if, say, you had a dance floor, and there was a whole bunch of moving spotlights on the dance floor, and you wanted to get from one side of the dance floor to the other without ever being seen. Well, if you know how the spotlights are programmed to move around and you know where the surface ships that might have their own spotlights might be, dynamic programming gives you a way to compute the optimal path to wend your way through the time-dependent dynamic threats that are trying to detect and kill you. We have a big project to apply that whole idea to it in an important area. And that's kind of what we did. We got back to basic naval analysis after we did the trading systems and, say, bought Metron Aviation. And we tried to diversify for a while through buying and getting into new areas, but then we actually sold them all off. We sold off Terraline, we sold off the, the aviation business, and we sold off the trading business to get back to actually working for government clients. I don't know if this is classified, but could you tell me a, a little bit about Air France and how you kind of found that plane? This is not classified at all, and so I can tell you a lot about that. A project like that, you can't build your business on that because there just aren't that many of them, and they don't pay off that well. So you, you can't do that. You sort of have to have a broader context to deal and to actually fund a, a large business. So Air France 447, I forget the exact year this was. This is about 20 years ago at this point, I think. 2009. 2009. Okay, so... 13 years ago. So it was going from, I think, from South America to Paris, maybe Buenos Aires. I may have that wrong. And so it was going directly over the Atlantic Ocean. It was a fairly short trip. And along the way, something happened physically to the aircraft. And I forget exactly what it is right now. And I wasn't involved in this search. Larry Stone was. And it went down over the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge is a mountain range under the water. And so the way in which in other applications like this, for example, we were at the Suez Canal looking for ordnance that had been thrown in there during the Yom Kippur War. Larry Stone and another colleague of mine were involved in a search for an H-bomb lost off the coast of Spain in 1963. And when something gets dropped in the water and then goes to the bottom, the sensor system of choice is called side-scan sonar. So side-scan sonar is like a little torpedo that has acoustic membranes on each side that make sound. They ping in the water. The ping bounces off what's ever down there, comes back. If there are hard metallic objects on the bottom, the ping will be stronger and you can tell if you detected something. All the sounds are recorded and processed to look for 
manifestations of detections. Anyway, since the plane went down over the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is essentially a mountain range, that's a situation which is hard to deal with with side-scan sonar because you put the side-scan sonar down, but the mountains at the bottom might be in the way of them bouncing off the actual object on the bottom, if you know what I mean. Like, if things get lost in a mountain range and you're standing on a valley, you can't see what's over the mountains. So the same thing is true of using side-scan sonar. And so it went down. The French made an attempt at using their side. A lot of these governments have these kinds of open ocean sensing systems at using their side-scan sonar, but couldn't find it. So they hired us to do it because we have actually had a lot of experience in things like this. And so the first thing we did was we tried to figure out when the plane went down exactly where it hit the water, the surface. But what we added into the equation was because the frame has so much freeboard, like big wings and places where if water pushes on it, it can actually move it along. We actually studied the ocean currents in that area and tried to predict that if it hit the water at a particular spot, how the currents would move that to a different location before it landed on the bottom. So what, all we did was actually we did fluid dynamic analysis. We factored that into the potential location of the object and found that the region that it could have landed in because of uncertainties in the actual ocean currents at depth, it created a much larger area to search than the French had been searching. And basically, it was in that area. It took about a week to find it. But since we enlarged the search area in an intelligent way to guarantee that we had kind of found a region that was highly likely to contain the target, you know, net of the currents, we were able to find it. After your first contract in 1984, how did you grow your business? Like, what was your strategy to get more contracts? Well, I knew a lot of people who I thought were number one, good technically, and number two, had existing clients. And what happens if you move around, you know, if you're a lawyer, for example, and you move to a new law firm, typically your clients come with you, unless there are legal restrictions in that, which sometimes there are. Basically, when I began expanding, I basically knew a lot of people that I thought were good scientists and also had a good client base. And as they came on board, it takes a while because of legalities to get the clients transferred over to you. But these clients tend to follow people that have helped them. And people in these industries sometimes move around. So basically, I hired some people that I thought were good scientists who also had a good client base. And that's the way I kind of built the firm. Did you ever need to raise money or were you completely non-funded? Never raised any money. We kind of grew out of existing cash flow. And that, of course, that limited our growth well. I mean, I could have grown more quickly had we you know, gone out and gotten some money and hired some fresh talent. But the way I decided to grow, a company like this produces good income for everybody, regardless of the size of the firm. It's because clients that hire you are paying your rate. Everybody in these businesses, like a consulting firm or a law firm, has a rate. And when you agree to use a particular, say, lawyer on your matter or, or scientific consultant, consultant on your scientific problem, you're more or less agreeing to pay his rate plus an overhead component that's put on top of that to cover business expenses. And so everybody was making a good living. And as we continued to grow by adding more scientists, they all came with their own clients. And so it was just a, like what kept us together was camaraderie among us and the fact that we all thought the firm had the best talent in the world. So from the beginning, people were able to feed their families from the very beginning when they brought their own clients. And then it's just a matter of growing the firm into something that we all enjoyed being in. And then you also went to, I think it was in 2000. 2004, you went to Ramsey Quantitative Systems and you built a trading mechanism based on statistics. Can you tell me about that? A lot of people who are mathematicians think this is the holy grail of using mathematics to predict the markets. And people that study the markets know that it's relatively hard to do because most existing markets have had kind of the information traded out of them. That's the point of the book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. What you want to do when you invest in stocks from a technical point of view is be at a low point before it's going to rise and then go long. And then as it begins to fall again, go short. And by a combination of longs and shorts, 
when you think the market is rising or falling, you make positive money. And so easier said than done, man, I'm telling you, but that's the basic idea. And so everybody, all mathematicians want to take their shot at this. They all think, well, I'm a mathematician, I can get rich. They find out quickly that it's not that easy. But I went through that phase too. And Tony Richardson, the guy who took me out of grad school, had gone through this phase. And it's fun. So we had data and we were trying it on the data. And eventually we thought we had kind of an idea that would work in the futures market. And so Metron got into the business of trading futures contracts for softs and commodities and a selection of futures contracts that we thought had this kind of statistical consistency to it. We ran that business for like three or four years. And then I used to go to a lot of conferences and talk about what we were doing. And it it tends to catch the eye of people in the financial business who think of themselves as mathematicians or engineers. And so that's how I met Neil Ramsey. He's an engineer from Vanderbilt and a very smart guy. So Neil actually began running his father's funds. And he would go to conferences. And since he was an engineer, this idea of kind of when to switch from long to short is a subject to a technical analysis. You can set up simulations and studies where you study that question, like how do we decide when to switch from long to short? Just an example of a problem that might occur when you manage these funds. Neil and I hit it off. I mean, I kind of spoke his language. He spoke my language. And then he took over our fund. So we had other people actually trade it for us. I gave all the business to Neil. And then I got to spend a lot of time with him. And eventually he wanted me to spend part of my time being his chief scientist. And so I went half time at Metron and half time with Ramsey Quantitative Systems. And he managed like $10 billion. And plus I got to spend some time with Neil in Louisville. And Larry Stone ran the company for a while, Metron for a while. So I just had a hell of a good time. It was just fantastic. I was like really in the thick of actual market analysis with Neil. And I got to see kind of how theoretical systems that one might dream up actually suffer the slings and arrows of an actual trading system. And one thing you quickly learn is if there were no trading costs, you can make a hell of a lot of money. When we lost money, it was because we weren't making enough money to cover the trading costs. Anyway, I eventually decided to get out of that business. And I sold everything that we we had to Neil. He actually bought the business and then I was went back to Metron. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you've had to face in Metron? I think it's finding the right people. It's not easy to do. What we did was we did our best to screen people, try to find people that can do the work at the right level, who know enough math and physics to actually participate in the projects we have. And for whatever reason, it doesn't always work out. They don't fit in. They don't find the problems interesting. They find the problems too challenging. And so a lot of management for a firm like ours is simply continuity of bringing new people in at the right rate to build the company and kind of deal with the fact that some people might be leaving and kind of make it look continuous and stable from the outside, which it is, but it's not easy I mean, the firm is dynamic, people coming and going and kind of existing clients that we want to, you know, keep happy and, and serve well. And so that is like kind of keeping those clients in place and building a new client base in light of the, you know, the, the ever changing kind of staff base is a continuing challenge. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was so much fun. Well, it was a great honor and privilege to do it with you. As always, thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success.